Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. evening and welcome to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay and we've got a great show in store for you this evening. Our guest tonight will be Megan Ebos and my co-hosts this evening will be Dwayne Daughtry and Ashley, a new member of our crew. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Megan Ebos is the co-founder, executive director of Pearl, which is People for the Enforcement of Rape Laws. In 2003, Megan was raped in Memphis. She reported her rape to law enforcement and submitted to a forensic exam, but law enforcement did not investigate the case or test her rape kit until over nine years later. Megan has used her mishandled rape case to raise awareness about needed policy changes. And in the course of this work, she has further exposed over 12,000 untested rape kits in Memphis Police Department storage lockers. In 2013 and 14, over the Memphis mayor's objections, Megan successfully persuaded the Memphis City Council to allocate over $3 million of its own tax revenues to cover the cost of investigating thousands of previously ignored rape cases connected to untested rape kits. In 2015, Megan and a group of lawyers and community organizers formed Pearl, which advocates for criminal justice reform and provides the community's only peer support for people who have experienced sexual violence. She's a contributing writer at The Appeal, part of the Harvard University School of Law's Fair Punishment Project, and she holds a BA in English from Rhodes College and a Juris Doctor from the University of Mississippi. That's a pretty impressive resume you got there, Megan. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am really, really interested in the work that you do, and I'm sure that a lot of people who are listening tonight and will be listening in the future are curious as well. So let's start with you were a victim uh, of this sexual assault when you were 16. And in the nine years following that, you obviously had a lot to deal with, college, law school, life in general. What made you decide to take up this advocacy of yours? Well, it wasn't really a decision. It was more of like it involved me, I guess, the easiest way to put it. So I was 16 when I was attacked by a stranger. But the way that the police responded to me, accusing me of lying, very obviously not investigating. The way that I felt the only way that I could deal with that to survive survive was to try to be in denial about it and go on with my life as though nothing had happened. So I like put all of my focus into school and college and law school and was like coping in very unhealthy ways in my denial during those years. But I tried my best to keep the rape 
out of my life, but it came back into my life in spring of 2012 um, when the police had begun to investigate a serial rapist who struck around the area that I was living at the time. And I later learned that it turned out to be my rapist. And then I later learned that the police had not tested my rape kit until I called them in 2012. This was before, like, untested rape kits were, you know, an element of pop culture. So it was a very confusing thing to just, like, remain in the dark so much about my case and then have it come crashing into my life and then trying to get answers about what has happened and then learning about how many other people had been impacted by similar policies. So mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of how I got in- involved. All right. Now, I'm sure that there are a lot of people listening who aren't really aware of the, the whole issue of untested rape kits. And I'm going to play a little clip from your video that you produced with oh, thank um, you. your friend Heather Marlowe. I, I love this. This is my favorite clip, by the way. And I'm just going to play it and let you expound on that a little bit. So here it goes. Thank you so much. In 2013, it became national news that police across the U.S. had failed to test tens of thousands of rape kits. I thought it was hundreds of thousands. Who the fuck knows? Now, that's my favorite clip, by the way. Tell us a a little bit more about that Uh, phenomenon of the untested rape kit issue. mm, Yeah, that part was actually ad-libbed. There's a lot, a lot of media out there, like news media, fiction, entertainment, films about untested rape kits. But I guess the most basic explanation for anyone who's completely unaware is that after you are assaulted and you report to the police, the police collect evidence off of your body, like in a medical setting Mm -hmm. through an exam. And so that you give over your body in the hours after your assault, and it's insinuated that they need you to do that or else they can't investigate your case. So a lot of people, thousands of people underwent these exams thinking that the police were going to send the whatever was found on their bodies to a crime lab and into the national database to hopefully solve the crime. The police just didn't send them to be tested, period. Right, right. And often corresponds with the police just deciding not to investigate the cases. Right. Now, I've noticed that one sure way to get your dander up is to refer to it as a backlog. And I'm going to play another clip from your video. The media tends to run with whatever the cops tell them. And what they tell them is cops don't have enough money to test rape kits. In fact, the police obviously have enough resources to investigate crime. They just choose which crimes they investigate. So your position is that calling it a backlog is disingenuous. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Um, I don't think that everyone who uses that word is being disingenuous, though, because that's what they hear in the media. But certain people who and organizations who are deliberately using it are doing it disingenuously, definitely. Mm-hmm. You also, I've noticed both in your video and in other venues, you talk about your experience as a stranger rape. And I'm familiar with the difference between stranger rape and other forms of rape. 
most uh, organizations estimate that about 72% of assaults are committed by someone familiar to the victim, and only about mm-hmm. 20% are stranger rapes. But why do you, spe- you and Heather both, specifically refer to it as a stranger rape? Is there some other point that you're trying to make there? Yeah, yeah, there is. With regard to untested rape kits, so I want to make clear that I'm not trying to make any distinction morally. The stranger rapes and non-stranger rapes are both awful. So I'm not trying to say that one is worse than the other. Mm-hmm. With that being said, I do want to say that in cases where the police don't test rape kits, it's particularly negligent because when it's a stranger and you can't especially if you like in cases like mine and Heather's where we can't identify the assailant, the rape kit evidence is the only thing that could solve that case. So for the police to not test it is especially egregious. Contrast that with a case where the suspect's identity is known. The rape kit, if tested, would prove that sexual contact had occurred at that time but it would not prove that a rape had happened. So testing that rape kit or not testing it in a non-stranger rape is a very different thing, in my opinion. Okay. You and I had a brief conversation uh, about a week ago when we asked you to do the show, and, and I used the phrase victim's advocate, and you were pretty firm in your belief that you're not, at least not a typical victim's advocate. Would you care to expound on that a little bit? My view is that in the criminal justice system, since there are two parties, the government and the accused, victims' rights is kind of not not really a legal thing. And of course, they're, like victims should be treated with respect by the system, and they should be incentivized to report crime and cooperate with law enforcement if that's the goal. But I don't find victims' rights to be a very useful framework. Also, I don't align at all with the current victims' rights movement, so I really want to draw that distinction. But more largely, though, I don't think that our reform of the criminal justice system should be from the standpoint of victims' rights. I think that it should be pairing it down to what is needed to determine if someone is guilty or not and responding to that accordingly and not viewing it as a means of quote-unquote justice for victims. I don't think that it serves that purpose, so I don't really think that we should pretend that it does. I see. I guess one of the easiest ways to characterize your advocacy is you're working for accountability of the police. Is that how you would characterize it? I think that I would simply characterize it as I want law enforcement to respond to crime in a way that actually advances public safety. So I want law enforcement to properly investigate crimes. I want them, especially for my own safety, to investigate crimes that could possibly endanger me. But that includes all crimes. And I also want them to be legally investigated. And it benefits me as a victim, but it benefits our whole society. And it benefits law enforcement because their cases will be stronger if they're properly investigated. So that's what I want. 
I simply want the laws to be properly en- enforced as properly enforced as possible. Right. Here's a question that you get to ask yourself. It's you asking the question. Why do you hate the police so much? <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that what you're asking me? <laughs> oh, that's you asking the question right there. Do you ever get yeah. accused of being anti-police? Oh, of course. I don't know who decreed it to be such that if you point out anything wrong with the way that the police are operating, that you are anti-police. But that seems to be the standard response to criticism of the police. Right. Yeah. I've noticed that as well. But could I just say, I want to be clear, I'm pro-police. I want the Mm -hmm. police to be able to do their jobs. I want them to be able to investigate crime. Sure. I think everybody wants that. Even the criminals, really, down deep, want the police to be able to be effective at what they do. <laughs> to be effective and, and lawful. Yeah. So, sure. yeah, that's pro-police. All right. I have Ashley on the line here, and she has a couple of questions for you, Megan. You're live, Ashley. Hi. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you. Do you get attacked from all sides? I, I wouldn't say attacked. I'm not like in physical danger, but yeah, I don't, I find that I don't have that many allies, but I I do have some. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Uh, Um, I haven't like really not thought about how I feel about it. I don't know. It's a pretty lonely thing being an advocate in this day and age for anything, really. When you pick a a topic like this one, I think it's almost a given you're going to catch a lot of BS from all sides. I also am very fortunate to have some very, very supportive people in my life as well. Sure. Did you have another question, Ashley? Yes. Do you think that the Memphis Police Department is an outlier or typical of other police departments? I think that the Memphis Police Department is one of the worst police departments in the country for several reasons. But I think that in many ways, it's typical. It's everything that could go wrong in policing. It does go wrong, except it flies under the radar more than, like, Baltimore does. Because it, I, cause it's just a smaller city, I guess. I don't understand why it stays under the radar so much. It's very frustrating, but I think that Memphis is typical of a lot of what can go wrong. I'm going to let Dwayne pose a few questions for you, Megan. Dwayne, take it away. Hi, Megan. How are you? We finally get to talk via no longer Twitter. I know. It's to talk to you verbally. (laughs) Absolutely. And we've shared up when you hear the talk about Twitter and being blindsided. I think what we try to do is have a reasonable conversation I call it the conversation with the absurd at times, but we can't really put out all the fires. But when you talk about backlog, maybe we should appropriately term that as a fire log. When do you chop it? When do you start it? When do you put the fire out? When does it start again? Because that's what I think police are doing is they call it a backlog, but they're the ones that's created it. Exactly. Exactly. And and also they're the ones reporting that they have this backlog, but they're yes. the ones fudging the numbers. Yes. Is, is that what you see as well? Absolutely. And then it is the news media takes their word for it, even though they are the right. ones who created the problem. Yes. So, for example, many of us know about the Clary Act, correct, uh, the college yeah. reporting system? Yes. Well, yeah. well, if you 
commit a crime on a campus, but the charge is reduced, you don't have to place that charge on the Clary Act because it mm-hmm. no longer represents the real report. So do mm-hmm. you think that maybe we should actually implement a Truth in Reporting Act for police? That's interesting. Do you mean like a federal act? Well, that might be a, a federal database. Uh, the Clary Act is a federal database. But yeah. It just says yeah. if this is what you were charged with, but you were reduced in your sentence or you did a plea bargain, it's still this is what you did as far as the crime, but it doesn't have to necessarily reflect the person that uh, committed it. This is what the police Mm -hmm. charged with, and that should be reported. Uh, They still manipulate so much about what they charge, though. Yes, they do. Well, it's it's a game for the, I guess, the prosecutor. Which one do you want to go with? If you always go with the large one. Yeah, and in in some places, police can place the charges. So the police officer is just deciding if a rape happened right then and there. So I don't know. The numbers are so unreliable. And I've never heard of a truth and reporting concept, but that sounds interesting. Well, truth and reporting is no different if we sign a statement that says it's a sworn statement. The police should be Mm -hmm. held accountable that what they're doing is a sworn statement, too, as far as reporting. Don't they do that already? Well, yeah, but don't they already do that kind of like with the UCR? But but who's interpreting them? Nobody's taking them to court. No. They're taking us to court. (laughs) So it's I think that's why I said the Truth and Reporting Act may be a first Mm -hmm. step uh, as far as remedy to that. That, That's really interesting. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation maybe. Uh, well, excuse me, the Memphis Police Department, you know, you sent your information as far as a rape, and it was tested, what, nine years later? Mm-hmm. And because you made a call, my thing is, yeah. is, if we have, let's say, your rape kit, and we have how many rapes per year, 10,000 by a state standard or so forth, and I'm being liberal in those numbers, mm-hmm. but that's a lot of rape kits sitting in a a major crimes unit investigation place, a holding area. That's a lot of kids sitting on a shelf somewhere with a lot of other evidence for other crimes. Uh, yeah. it, it seems like that we just have a big room full of skeletons in the closet, but nobody inventorying oh, yeah. the skeletons. <laughs> so, but it's not how, just rape kits, though. I like yeah, we right, ha- It's right. so important because a lot of police departments have come under like federal charges for different shenanigans with their property and evidence storage, like Memphis, Detroit. I'm just naming the ones that I know of off the top of my head that also have rape kit problems. But the Memphis police department was essentially running its own drug cartel out of the property and evidence room and dealing cash and weapons And that's going on, like, in the midst of a rape kit being tossed somewhere. Right. So if we have this file, if existent, tossed. Right. So if we have this Truth and Reporting Act, and I'm just, it's just, I'm naming it that, because I think we we already have that dialogue going. What if we pass that information to a larger organization, maybe to a state organization, like the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation or the State Bureau because Memphis clearly can't manage or Baltimore or any other town just put a name in front of their police department. They're just overwhelmed with traffic, vagrancy, breakings and enterings, all these other things that the rape situation is a bigger and more intricate playing field 
there needs to be a bigger oversight. Do you, do you have a suggestion for that, or is there a way that we can advocate better for it? Uh, no, I don't have a suggestion for that, but I would, no, that's okay. I would <laughs> happily support something like that, though. I would be very supportive. That sounds like a good idea. It's a part of that restorative justice instead of the justice reforms because we just don't have enough, I think, to really go to a justice reform when there's no formality. Uh, it's no. Uh, an informality. Maybe that might be a good start. Yeah. Um, but I want to also thank you for sharing your story, your mission, and your purpose. That had to be a very hard step for you to move forward. How do you feel today? Has it been more liberating for you? I don't know how I would have felt if I hadn't done that. But thank you for the kind words. I I really do appreciate that. You have my support, I, and there's many other people <laughs> that support you. I I really I I very much appreciate that. Yeah, I felt that I had to like quote unquote share my story in Memphis because the police department was lying to the public about what was going on with rape cases. So right. that's like how I started doing that. It, it was kind of out of necessity. And then it like snowballed, I guess. But yeah, it's just, it's crazy. I never so, would have so, imagined, I, I never would have imagined that this would be my life work. But I feel very lucky to be able to be doing work on this. You are very lucky. You're very fortunate. And uh, you are a true leader for other people, especially in, the, in this field. And I applaud you for doing that. Thank you. What, There are so many of these old rape kits that are sitting on shelves all across America, but those rape kits, maybe 10 to 15, maybe 20 years ago that are still sitting on a shelf collecting dust, has physical names. There's no longer a case number or so forth. It may be on the box somewhere, but these are actual people. Now, every one of these kits is a person, but the, the more modern methodology is providing barcoding and so forth. These older kits do not have this. So the victim's name is actually the ones posted on a majority of these rape kits. So when they're destroyed, my question to Memphis or any other police department is how are they destroyed? Are they just thrown into a dumpster somewhere so that someone else can say, oh, by the way, here's Mary Smith. Uh, she must have been raped in 1976 or 1996 or something, but her name is on there or whoever the victim's mm-hmm. name is. Mm-hmm. Are we are we really putting the cart before the horse with uh, how to deal with these, this so-called backlog? We haven't modernized those types of files yet. Where, where do we go? No, yes. Yeah, we're totally putting the cart before the horse. I would still challenge the Memphis Police Department to explain what procedure, what protocol, if any, it has for destruction of biological samples and record keeping. Right. It is a quandary because we have really 50 states, but on top of that, we have other layers of municipalities around the uh, Mm -hmm. Guam and so forth. That means we have 54 different types of laws and then the federal law overlapping that as well. It makes it very convoluted uh, to to have a, I would say, a specific role in how to deal with this evidence because every it's very, state very has much. its own, well, they have their own identification and, of and rape And then every, every police department locally has its own policy, and they right. all operate right. independently pretty much. So going back to that original question, do you think maybe we should kind of federalize a standard? My instinct is not to federalize that. Okay, okay. Um, 
That's fair. No, that's because fair. law enforcement is such a local issue. It, like crime right. is such a local issue, and I think that a lot of our problems that have gotten us to this point have come from federalizing different right. aspects of crime control over the past few decades. But uh, we do have so many funding streams that the police, that the federal government could hold the police accountable for. They could attach conditions and, and they could improve their quality control or, or re- truth in reporting, like you were saying. So, sure. um yeah, I don't, so I don't what think if that, we, that would hurt. What if we went instead of toward a federalized database, maybe toward a, a federal standard? This is a, re- a recommended standard for all departments so that Tennessee, for example, can share information collectively with North Carolina, North Carolina can share with Virginia and vice versa instead of its own way. You know, our, Memphis, we do things differently than we do here in, in mm-hmm. Chapel Hill or in Charlotte. Maybe if there is a standardized way, do you do you think maybe that might help? Well, I think they do that already, right? Okay. Like through the well, UCR that's a, program? that's a good question. <laughs> that's, I no, mean, that's I know question. that local local departments report their numbers to the state, like the TBI in Tennessee. Right. And then the TBI right. reports to the FBI for the UCR, the Uniform Crime Report. Right. But now we're getting back into the backlog of where they can fudge the numbers based upon there's no interpretation of the federal guidance. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so I think yeah. what we've done is we've peeled back the onion where we see a lot of exposures. Clearly, there's a lot of exposures. Yeah, the law professor Corey Rayburn Young, I think at University of Kansas a few years ago, wrote a paper in which he proposed a way that the FBI – could make the the uniform crime reporting process more legitimate and a way that they could implement that by having it as a condition to some funding stream or whatever. Right. So well, I uh, think that would be helpful. Well, that, that would be very helpful. Thank you for being so candid. Is there something that we should be doing as advocates and other areas that could join together maybe interlock arms to work with one another. What can we do as listeners and as as advocates ourselves to help facilitate your cause? Well, thank you. I'm so grateful for you and anyone who is asking that. So thank you so much for asking. Just don't conceptualize it as a backlog. It is simply what the police decided to investigate and what they didn't. And be aware that when you hear that police have tested a rape kit, that does not mean that they have inve- they are now investigating the case, much less prosecuting it. So even when you hear in the news that some city has, quote, ended its backlog, that doesn't mean that much, really. So just well, to, it means, to me, it means they just threw that. it in the dumpster. <laughs> uh, that, uh, exact, yeah. that exact thing happened here in North Carolina where – they were just tossed yes. into the dumpster. Yes, I, I heard about that. Exactly, exactly. So, so the, yeah, yep, the, there goes your it, backlog. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's clear. A, that, and it's a similar problem to, like, the crime statistics because everywhere the police department are defining things differently, and some just throw rape kits away, some don't. You, so you to just throw it all together under the umbrella of a rape kit backlog is, is so misleading. Be aware of that, no. I guess. I'm going to ask you probably a sensitive question here to build on that. 
what if your case wasn't even looked at and today you just found out that the Memphis or TBI, uh, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, just threw away your rape kit. How would you feel now? Because I'm sure there's a listener out there that's experiencing this. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, truly it's going to be anger, but how do you get justice? Oh, or I have no how do you idea. Get that? I, I have no idea. I still have issues about my rape kit that right. was tested. I can't even begin to understand how someone would feel finding out that their rape kit was lost. Like, I, I, I couldn't begin. You know, and it's easy for me to say, because my rapist was prosecuted, so some people have told me it's easy for you to say that the criminal justice system doesn't provide justice when your rapist is in prison, and yes, but I can say from experience that that does not provide me with a sense of justice. So what I would say to someone whose rape kit was destroyed would just be to try to not mourn a sense of justice that was never going to be possible. But having said that, I, like, I would be in, beyond enraged if I found right. out, if I found that out. And it would be devastating. And if I could expand that to our audience, listening audiences, that that would be an opportunity for you out there that are experiencing this at this moment or had or know of somebody that had their rape kit tossed in the trash or destroyed to be a part of this group and to join Megan and her fight to make sure that it doesn't happen to future, future generations as well. Yeah. But I thank you very, very much. And, you know, we hope to see you at one of our conferences and, and discuss. Oh, more. I would and, love uh, that so much. I, I would love to a see more people in my position <laughs> to be advocates. Right. Also, we didn't get to talk about the registry very much, but I would love well, to no, see it, people. It all intertwines. It intertwines. It does oh, intertwine. Yeah, so, it, um, definitely. It, so, you know, Michael I'm and the rest side. of the group here, I think we're all on each other's side. And that's what makes yeah. this argument really well, valid. Is that, not the victim advocacy, though. Like, the, not a lot of the victim advocacy. Like, you know what I'm talking right. about. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, it's just yeah. a matter of a conversation starter. And as soon as we're all talking and maybe singing Kumbaya, or your dog or my cat is singing in the background, yeah. you know, <laughs> the world is a happier place. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have my full support, and I again, I am just very thankful to be on this show and have this conversation with you guys. Well, we're not quite done yet, Megan, but uh, we've oh, still got a little okay. ways to go, and I do have a couple more questions for you as we wrap up the show. I'm so glad okay. that you said what you said about the, the remark that people have made to you saying that, well, if your attacker is in prison, getting confirmation uh, from a rape kit, a DNA test doesn't get you any justice. And I'm so glad you said that because from my standpoint as a registry reform advocate, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who can't wrap their heads around the idea that I support the work that you do. And here's the reason why. You said you don't get justice because that rape kit identified a guy who's already in prison. But guess what? In so doing, it exonerates 10 other people who may have been suspects or may have been uh, affected by suspicions or accusations or whatever. So for every one person who is convicted by DNA, there are a lot of people who are exonerated. 
And I would think that anyone who values the the idea of innocent until proven guilty would welcome the idea that rape kits help to convict the guilty and help to exonerate the, the innocent. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I, I don't think anyone is against testing rape kits. I've yet to hear anyone say that they're against testing rape kits. But Well, that would be political suicide, wouldn't it? You've mentioned that the legal process is adversarial by its very nature. Mm -hmm. It's necessarily so. But these issues don't necessarily have to be adversarial or just black and white. There's a lot of gray in these areas. And you can be both, for example, both a victim's advocate and an advocate for due process. So you don't have to be one or the other. You've said And this is a quote from your video again. You said Republicans love the police and Democrats want to be the police. Do you think politics makes this doubly hard for you to get anything done? Probably. What do you mean? Well, I guess, obviously, for example, the the untested rape kits are definitely an issue in local politics. You had to go up against the mayor of Memphis to get anything done uh, with the city council. Your microphone seems to be having a little bit of technical difficulties, so if there's anything oh, no. you can do to, to – there you go. You Is sound better? much better. Right there. Yeah, much better. Oh, okay. You made some reference, and I don't know if it's you or whoever's working with you to produce the website, but you made some reference to officials and particularly the police department claiming that this issue exists because DNA testing was relatively uncommon and expensive way back in the day. And I believe you were able to kind of refute that by quoting a former lieutenant from the police department, Mr. Cody Wilkerson, who says that this uncaring or this unwillingness to pursue these rape kits continued well past that era, even into the present. Have you found any allies within the police department or do they all pretty much consider you the enemy? I would I would just say that I I have found allies with people who are former police officers. I see. I see. Are they a big help to you or are they just information sources for you? Cody Wilkerson testified in support of a lawsuit that I initiated against the city of Memphis. So Mm -hmm. he has been helpful, very helpful, and willing to talk to reporters. Right. How did you come to collaborate with Heather Marlowe. You seem to be a, a great team. Are, have you worked on other things previously? Yes. We met through the Joyful Heart Foundation, ironically, in 2014. We were part of a focus group of rape victims whose rape kits had not been tested. And at that focus group, I'm not sure if listeners are familiar with Joyful Heart Foundation, but it's the supposed leading national expert on untested rape kits. And it is founded by Mariska Hargitay, the woman who plays Olivia Benson on Law & Order SVU. Mm -hmm. So Heather and I met as subjects at this focus group and stayed in touch after the focus group and noticed the direction that the media and federal advocacy was going and felt that like an alternative viewpoint was needed. Mm -hmm. For our listeners who have not seen the video, I highly recommend it. It's on YouTube and it's entitled, There Is No Rape Kit Backlog. 
What kind of feedback are you getting from that video? Uh, Among people who are supportive of our point of view, very positive. (laughs) But um, among among law enforcement who've watched it, not so positive. And then among some people around the country who have advocated to end the backlog in their states, they didn't appreciate it. But I'm happy with the feedback. Well, it's a, it's a great video, and I thank you. I, uh, I really think that both you and Heather are very brave to even take on a project like that. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> the, the idea of getting in front of a video camera and doing what I do is hell. The radio show is scary enough for me, so definitely yeah. kudos to both of you. Something else I noticed on your website is there was at some point in the Memphis Police Department a an initiative where they wanted to put sexual assault victims on GPS monitors. What was that about? Yeah, that remains unclear, but in the limited amount of information that the Rape Kit Task Force releases about its testing progress, they started presenting this slide in their slideshow that had a picture of an ankle monitor GPS device, and it just it said GPS program, and it said X number suspects in the program, rape suspect. They're talking about the rape kit suspects, and then they had like domestic violence suspects, and then they had a second category below that said X number of victims wearing the devices, and. So I saw that and thought that it was odd, and I researched it a little bit myself and found that there are, like, some d- GPS devices where, like, a second party can can be, like, notified about mm-hmm. the one person's thing. But, but from what I understand, those are not monitored by law enforcement in real time and, like, don't seem to be that reliable. And there were just all these questions that I was wondering. So I tried to get a few reporters to look into this, but I couldn't find any uh, one to do it. So I wrote something about it for the what is now the appeal and finally got some answers after I had to write a story reporting about it. But Apparently, the victims are choosing to wear these devices, and the devices are apparently monitored in real time by law enforcement. And so the task force, since my story has updated their PowerPoint to show like a second photograph of a different device that the victims are wearing Mm -hmm. voluntarily, But I still have a lot of questions about that because I found conflicting information saying that the devices will not be monitored by law enforcement in real time. Wow. Now that you have said that, it reminds me of cases that I'm aware of, mine being one of them. I don't normally talk about my case just for personal reasons, but not that it's horrible or anything. I just don't like making stuff Mm -hmm. about me. But in my case, two women were held incarcerated for five months as material witnesses, never charged with anything, Mm -hmm. to compel them to testify. And I can can see where prosecutors might not want to actually keep someone in a jail to compel them to testify, but might want to keep tabs on them 
until yes. a case is completely adjudicated. And I could see how they might, personally, I think it's a horrible, horrible idea, but I could see how they might want to put someone on a GPS just to make sure they come mm-hmm. back and testify in a trial or something. That's what I was, yes, that's what I was scared of. But I right. didn't ask that directly of the task force. But I, that, yeah, that's what I was scared of. Yeah. Um, in, in my mind, that's a horrible I, thing to do to somebody who's not charged with any crime. Who, it's, <laughs> who, no. And, and then much less someone who's raped it, they've now learned, was never tested until now. Right. Right. Um, there are just so many, but I, so many things going on yeah, that just make you shake yeah, your head. Yeah, there's so many. Yeah, like the, I still have a lot of open questions about that because the task mm-hmm. force claimed that they got a federal grant to do the program, but I can't find any records of such a grant. I see. Um, I, I don't know. Tell our listeners where they can uh, find your website and learn a little bit more about what you're doing and how they can contact you if they want to. Probably I'm most easy to find on Twitter. So my Twitter is at M-E-Y-621. <laughs> and the website for people for the enforcement of rape laws is enforcerapelaws.org. And you can contact us through that as well. Super, super. I just want to thank you again for being our guest. I know that you're not a registry reform advocate, but you are an advocate for keeping the police accountable for what they do and for fair trials and for treating everyone with respect. And as far as I'm concerned, that puts you on the same team as I am. So I'm, I'm very, thank you. And I very do, yeah, happy I do with the work you're doing. Regis- yeah, I do support registry reform also. I don't believe that there should be a registry. So well, that's, 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 that's good to hear. Maybe that's a whole other conversation. We'll definitely have to uh, invite you out to one of our conferences, and maybe you can I would be go into greater depth with mm-hmm. your thoughts on that. Uh, oh, I would So love thank that. you so much. Thank you so much for being well, here. Well, thank and, you. Uh, thank we'll you. We'll have again. you back I'm, again I'm sometime. I'm sure. Super. Okay. Have, well, have, have a good a night. Bye bye. Bye. All right. You've been listening to Registry Report Radio. My name is Michael McKay, and my co-host today has been Dwayne Daughtry. And we'll see you next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.